Welcome back to my Relaxing Literature podcast. Tonight, we're going to be continuing our reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. We're currently beginning letter three. To Mrs. Seville, England, July 7th. My dear sister, I write a few lines in haste to say that I am safe and well advanced on my voyage. This letter will reach England by a merchant man now on its homeward voyage from Archangel, more fortunate than I, who may not see my native land, perhaps for many years. I am, however, in good spirits. My men are bold and apparently firm of purpose, nor do the floating sheets of ice that continually pass us, indicating the dangers of the region towards which we are advancing, appear to dismay them. We have already reached a very high latitude, but it is the height of summer, and although not so warm as in England, as in England, the southern gales which blow us speedily toward those shores to which I so ardently desire to attain breathe a degree of renovating warmth which I had not expected. No incidents have hitherto befallen us that would make a figure in, in a letter. One or two stiff gales and the breaking of a mast are accidents which experienced navigators scarcely remember to record, and I shall be well content if nothing worse happened to us during our voyage. I do, my dear Margaret, be assured that for my own sake as well as yours, I will not rashly encounter danger. I will be cool, persevering, and prudent. Remember me to all my English friends. Most affectionately yours, R.W. Letter 4 To Mrs. Seville, England August 5th So strange an accident has happened to us that I cannot forbear recording it, although it is very probable that you will see me before these papers can come into your possession. Last Monday, July 31st, we were nearly surrounded by ice which closed in the ship on all sides, scarcely leaving her the sea room in which she floated. Our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were encompassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hoping that some change would take place in the atmosphere and the weather. About two o'clock, the mist cleared away and we beheld stretched out in every direction vast and irregular plains of ice, which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned, and my own mind began to grow watchful with anxious thoughts, when a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention, and diverted our solicitude from our own situation. We perceived a low carriage, fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs, pass on toward the north at the distance of half a mile, a being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature, sat on the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveller with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. This appearance excited our unqualified wonder. We were, as we believed, many hundred miles away from any land, but this apparition seemed to denote that it was not in reality so distant as we had supposed. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible to follow his track, which we had observed with the greatest attention. 
About two hours after this occurrence, we heard the ground sea, and before the night, the ice broke and freed our ship. However, lay to until the morning, fearing to encounter in the dark those large, loose masses which float after, which float about after breaking up of the ice. I profited of this time to rest for a few hours. In the morning, however, as soon as it was light, I went upon deck and found all the sailors busy in one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea. It was, in fact, a sledge like the one we had seen before, which drifted toward us in the night on a large fragment of ice. Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being with it, whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other travelers seemed to be, a savage inhabitant of some discovered land, but an European. When I appeared on deck, the master said, Here is our captain, and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea. On perceiving me, the stranger addressed me in English, although with a foreign accent. Before I come on board your vessel, said he, will you have the kindness to inform me whither you are bound? You may conceive my astonishment on hearing such a question addressed to me from a man on the brink of destruction, and to whom I should have supposed that my vessel would have been a resource which he would not have exchanged for the most precious wealth the earth can afford. I replied, however, that we were on a voyage of discovery toward the northern pole. Upon hearing this, he approached, he appeared satisfied, and consented to come on board. Good God, Margaret, if you had seen the man who thus capitulated for his safety, your surprise would have been boundless. His limbs were nearly frozen, and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. We attempted to carry him into the cabin, but as soon as he had quitted the fresh air, he fainted. We accordingly brought him back to the deck, and restored him to animation by rubbing him with brandy, and forcing him to, follow, to swallow a small quantity. As soon as he shewed signs of life, we wrapped him up in blankets and placed him near the chimney of the kitchen stove. By slow degrees he recovered and ate a little soup, which restored him wonderfully. Two days passed in this manner before he was able to speak, and I often feared that his sufferings had deprived him of understanding. When he had in some measure recovered, I removed him to my own cabin and attended to him as much as my duty would permit. I never saw a more interesting creature. His eyes have generally an expression of wildness and even madness, but there are moments when, if anyone performs an act of kindness toward him or does him the most trifling service, his whole countenance is lighted up, as it were, with a beam of benevolence and sweetness that I never saw equaled. But he is generally melancholy and despairing, and sometimes he gnashes his teeth, as if impatient of the weight of woes that oppresses him. When my guest was a little recovered, I had a great trouble to keep off the men, who wished to ask him a thousand questions, but I would not allow them to be tormented by their idle curiosity, in a state of body and mind whose restoration evidently depended on entire repose. Once, however, the lieutenant asked why he had come so far upon the ice in so strange a vehicle. His countenance instantly assumed an aspect of the deepest gloom, and he replied, To seek one who fled from me. And did the man whom you pursued travel in the same fashion? Yes. 
and I fancy we have seen him, for the day before we picked you up, we saw some dogs drawing a sledge with a man in it across the ice. This aroused the stranger's attention, and he asked a multitude of questions concerning the route which the demon, as he called him, had pursued. Soon after, when he was alone with me, he said, I have doubtless excited your curiosity, as well as that of the good people, but you are too considerate to make inquiries. Certainly, it would indeed be very impertinent and inhuman in me to trouble you with any inquisitiveness of mine. And yet you rescued me from a strange and perilous situation. You have benevolently restored me to life. Soon after this, he inquired if I thought that the breaking up of the ice had destroyed the other sledge. I replied that I could not answer with any degree of certainty, for the ice had not broken until near midnight, and the traveller might have arrived at a place of safety before that time, but of this I could not judge. From this time the stranger seemed very eager to be upon deck, to watch for the, for the sledge which had before appeared, but I have persuaded him to remain in the cabin, for he is far too weak to sustain the rawness of the atmosphere. But I have promised that someone should watch for him, and give him instant notice if any new object should appear in sight. Such is my journal of what relates to this strange occurrence up to the present day. The stranger has gradually improved in health, but is very silent, and appears uneasy when anyone except myself enters his cabin. Yet his manners are so conciliating and gentle that the sailors are all interested in him, although they have had very little communication with him. For my own part, I begin to love him as a brother, and his constant and deep grief fills me with sympathy and compassion. He must have been a noble creature in his better days, being even now in wreck so attractive and amiable. I said in one of my letters, my dear Margaret, that I should find no friend if on the wide ocean, yet I have found a man who, before his spirit had been broken by misery, I should have been happy to have possessed as my brother of heart. I shall continue my journal concerning the stranger at intervals, though I should I have any fresh incidents to record. August 13th. My affection for my guest increases every day. He excites at once my admiration and my pity to an astonishing degree. How can I see so noble a creature destroyed by misery without feeling the most poignant grief? He is so gentle, yet so wise. His mind is so cultivated, and when he speaks, although his words are culled with the choicest art, yet they flow with rapidity and unparalleled eloquence. He is now much recovered from his illness, and is continually on the deck, apparently watching for the sledge that preceded his own. Yet, although unhappy, he is not so utterly occupied by his own misery, but that he interests himself deeply in the employments of others. He has asked me many questions concerning my design, and I have related my little history frankly to him. He appeared pleased with the confidence and suggested several alterations in my plan, which I shall find exceedingly useful. There is no pedantry in his manner, but all he does appears to be to spring solely from the interest he instinctively takes in the welfare of those who surround him. He is often overcome by gloom, and then he sits by himself and tries to overcome all that is sullen or unsocial in his humor. These paroxysms pass him from him like a cloud from before the sun, though his dejection never leaves him. I have endeavored to win his confidence, and I trust that I have succeeded. 
One day, I mentioned to him the desire I had always felt of finding a friend who might sympathize with me and direct me by his counsel. I said I did not belong to that class of men who are offended by advice. I am self-educated, and perhaps I hardly rely sufficiently upon my own powers. I wish, therefore, that my companion should be wiser and more experienced than myself to confirm and support me, nor have I believed it impossible to find a true friend. I agree with you, replied the stranger, in believing that friendship is not only a desirable, but a possible acquisition. I once had a friend, the most noble of human creatures, and am entitled, therefore, to judge respecting friendship. You have hope and the world before you, and have no cause for despair, but I, I have lost everything, and I cannot begin life anew. As he said this, his countenance became expressive of a calm, settled grief that touched me to the heart. But he was silent and presently retired to his cabin. Even broken in spirit as he is, no one can feel more deeply than he does the beauties of nature, the starry sky, the sea, and every sight afforded by those wonderful regions seems to have the power of elevating his soul from the earth. Such a man has a double existence. He may suffer misery and be overwhelmed by disappointments, yet when he has retired into himself he will be like a celestial spirit that has a halo around him, within whose grief, within whose circle no grief or folly ventures. Will you laugh at the enthusiasm I express concerning this divine wanderer? If you do, you must have certainly lost that simplicity which was once your characteristic charm. Yet if you will, smile at the warmth of my expressions, while I find every day new causes for repeating them. August 19th Yesterday the stranger said to me, You may easily perceive, Captain Walton, that I have suffered great and unparalleled misfortunes. I had determined once that the memory of these evils should die with me, but you have won me to alter my determination. You seek for knowledge and wisdom, as I once did, and I ardently hope that the gratification of your wishes may not be a serpent to sting you as mine has been. I do not know that the relation of my misfortunes will be useful to you, yet, if you are inclined, listen to my tale. I believe that the strange incidents connected with it will afford a view of nature, which may enlarge your faculties and understanding. You will hear of powers and occurrences such as you have been accustomed to believe impossible, but I do not doubt that my tale conveys in its series internal evidence of the truth of the events of which it is composed. You may easily conceive that I was much gratified by the offered communication, yet I would not endure that he should renew his grief by a recital of his misfortunes. I felt the greatest eagerness to hear the promised narrative partly from curiosity and partly from a strong desire to ameliorate his fate, if it were in my power. I expressed these feelings in my answer. I thank you, he replied, for your sympathy, but it is useless. My fate is nearly fulfilled. I wait but for one event, and then I shall repose in peace. I understand your feeling, continued he, perceiving that I wished to interrupt him, but you are mistaken, my friend. If thus you will allow me to name you, Nothing can alter my destiny. Listen to my history, and you will perceive how irrevocably it is determined. He then told me that he would commence his narrative the next day, when I should be at leisure. This promise drew from me the warmest thanks. 
I have resolved every night, when I am not engaged, to record as nearly as possible, in his own words, what he has related during the day. If I should be engaged, I will at least make notes. This manuscript will doubtless afford you the greatest pleasure, but to me, who know him, and who hear it from his own lips, with what interest and sympathy shall I read it in some future day? Chapter 1 I am by birth a Genovese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors had been for many years counselors and syndics, and my father had filled several public situations with honor and reputation. He was respected by all who knew him for his integrity and indefatigable attention to public business. He passed his younger days perpetually occupied by the affairs of his country, and it was not until the decline of his life that he thought about marrying and bestowing on the state sons who might carry his virtues and his name down to posterity. As the circumstances of his marriage illustrate his character, I cannot refrain from relating them. One of his most intimate friends was a merchant who, from a flourishing state, fell through numerous mischances into poverty. This man, whose name was Beaufort, was of a proud and unbending disposition, and could not bear to live in poverty and oblivion in the same country where he had formerly been distinguished for his rank and magnificence. Having paid his debts, therefore, in the most honorable manner, he retreated with his daughter to the town of Lucerne, where he lived unknown and in wretchedness. My father loved Beaufort with the truest friendship, and was deeply grieved by his retreat in these unfortunate circumstances. He grieved also for the loss of his society, and resolved to seek him out, and endeavor to persuade him to begin the world again through his credit and his assistance. Beaufort had taken effectual measures to conceal himself, and it was ten months before my father discovered his abode. Overjoyed at this discovery, he hastened to the house, which was situated in a mean street near the Rus. But when he entered, misery and despair alone welcomed him. Beaufort had saved but a very small sum of money from the wreck of his fortunes, but it was sufficient to provide him with sustenance for some months, and in the meantime he had hoped to procure some respectable employment in a merchant's house. The interval was consequently spent in inaction, his grief only became more deep and rankling when he had the leisure for reflection, and at length it took hold so fast of his mind that at the end of three months he lay on a bed of sickness incapable of any exertion. His daughter attended him with the greatest tenderness, but she saw with despair that their little fund was rapidly decreasing, and that there was no other prospect of support. But Caroline Beaufort possessed a mind of an uncommon mould, and her courage rose to support her in her adversity. She procured plain work, she plaited straw, and by various means contrived to earn a pittance scarcely sufficient to support life. Several months passed in this manner. Her father grew worse. Her time was more entirely occupied in attending him. Her means of subsistence decreased, and in the tenth month her father died in her arms, leaving her an orphan and a beggar. This last blow overcame her, and she knelt by Beaufort's coffin, weeping bitterly, when my father entered the chamber. He came like a protecting spirit to the poor girl who committed herself to his care, and after the interment of his friend, he conducted her to Geneva and placed her under the protection of a relation. 
Two years after this event, Caroline became his wife. When my father became a husband and a parent, he found his time so occupied by the duties of his new situation that he relinquished many of his public employments and devoted himself to the education of his children. Of these, I was the eldest and the destined successor to all his labors and utility. No creature could have more tender parents than mine. My improvement and health were their constant care, especially as I remained for several years their only child. But before I continue my narrative, I must record an incident which took place when I was four years of age. My father had a sister, whom he tenderly loved, and who had married early in life an Italian gentleman. Soon after her marriage, she had accompanied her husband into, his, into her native country, and for some years my father had very little communication with her. About the time I mentioned, she died. And a few months afterward, he received a letter from her husband acquitting him with his intention of marrying an Italian lady and requesting my father to take charge of the infant Elizabeth, the only child of his deceased sister. It is my wish, he said, that you should consider her as your own daughter and educate her thus. Her mother's fortune is secured to her, the documents of which I will commit to your keeping. Reflect upon this proposition and decide whether you would prefer educating your niece yourself to her being brought up by a stepmother. My father did not hesitate and immediately went to Italy that he might accompany the little Elizabeth to her future home. I have often heard my mother say that she was at the time the most beautiful child she had ever seen and showed signs even then of a gentle and affectionate disposition. These indications and its desire to bind as closely as possible the ties of domestic love determined my mother to consider Elizabeth as my future wife a design from which she never found a reason to repent. From this time, Elizabeth Lavenza became my playfellow, and as we grew older, my friend. She was docile and good-tempered, yet gay and playful as a summer insect. Although she was lively and animated, her feelings were strong and deep, and her disposition uncommonly affectionate. No one could better enjoy liberty, yet no one could submit with more grace than she did to constraint and caprice. Her imagination was luxuriant, yet her capability of application was great. Her person was the image of her mind, her hazel eyes, although as lively as a bird's, possessed an attractive softness. Her figure was light and airy, and though capable of enduring great fatigue, she appeared the most fragile creature in the world. While I admired her understanding and fancy, I loved to, to tend on her, as I should on a favorite animal and I never saw so much grace, both of person and of mind, united in so little pretension. Everyone adored Elizabeth. If the servants had any request to make, it was always through her intercession. We were strangers to any species of disunion and dispute, for although there was a great dissimilitude on our characters, there was an harmony in that very dissimilitude. I was more calm and philosophical than my companion, yet my temper was not so yielding. My application was of longer endurance, but it was not so severe whilst it endured. I delighted in investigating the facts relative to the actual world. She busied herself in following the aerial creations of the poets. The world was, to me, a secret which I desired to discover. To her it was a vacancy which she sought to people with the imaginations of her own. My brothers were considerably younger than myself. 
that I had a friend and one of my schoolfellows who compensated for this deficiency. Henry Clerval was the son of a merchant of Geneva, an intimate friend of my father. He was a boy of singular talent and fancy. I remember, when he was nine years old, he wrote a fairy tale, which was the delight and amazement of all his companions. His favorite study consisted in books of chivalry and romance, and when very young I can remember that we used to act plays composed by him out of these favorite books, the principal characters of which were Orlando, Robin Hood, Amadeus, and St. George. No youth could have passed more happily than mine. My parents were indulgent, and my companions amiable. Our studies never forced, and by some means we always had an end placed in view, which excited us to ardor in the prosecution of them. It was by this method, and not by emulation, that we were urged to application. Elizabeth was not incited to apply herself to drawing, that her companions might not outstrip her, but through this desire of pleasing her aunt by the representation of some favorite scene done by her own hand. We learned Latin and English, that we might read the writings in those languages, and so far from study being made odious to us through punishment, we loved application, and our amusements would have been the labors of other children. Perhaps we did not read so many books or learn languages so quickly as those who are disciplined according to the ordinary methods, but what we learned was impressed the more deeply on our memories. In this description of our domestic circle, I include Henry Clerval, for he was constantly with us. He went to school with me, and generally passed the afternoon at our house, for being an only child and destitute of companions at home, his father was well pleased that he should find associates at our house, and we were never completely happy when Clerval was absent. I feel pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood, before misfortune had tainted my mind and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into a gloomy and narrow reflections upon self. But, in drawing the picture of my early days, I must not omit to record these events which led, by insensible steps, to my aftertale of misery, for when I would account to myself for the birth of that passion which afterward ruled my destiny, I find it arise like a mountain river from ignoble and almost forgotten sources, but swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which, in its course, has swept away all my hopes and joys. Natural philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I desire, therefore, in this narration to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was thirteen years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Thonon. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In this house I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. I opened it with apathy, the theory which he attempts to demonstrate, and the wonderful facts which he relates, soon changed this feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind, and, bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my father. I cannot help remarking here the many opportunities instructors possess of directing the attention of their pupils to useful knowledge, which they utterly neglect. My father looked carelessly at the title page of my book and said, Ah, Cornelius Agrippa, my dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. If, instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me 
that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded, and that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical. Under such circumstances, I should certainly have thrown Agrippa aside, and with my imagination, warmed as it was, should probably have applied myself to the more rational theory of chemistry which has resulted from modern discoveries. It is even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin, but the cursory glance at my father had taken of my volume no means, by no means assured me that he was acquainted with his contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. When I returned home, my first care was to procure the whole works of this author and afterwards of Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to me treasures known to a few beside myself, and although I often wished to communicate these secret stores of knowledge to my father, yet his indefinite censure, censure of my favorite Agrippa always withheld me. I disclosed my discoveries to Elizabeth, therefore, under a promise of strict secrecy, but she did not interest herself in the subject, and I was left by her to pursue my studies alone. It may appear very strange that a disciple of Albertus Magnus should arise in the 18th century, but our family was not scientifical, and I had not attended any of the lectures given at the schools of Geneva. My dreams were therefore undisturbed by reality and I entered with the greatest diligence into the search of the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life. But the latter obtained my most undivided attention. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? Nor were these my only visions. The raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded by my favorite authors, the fulfillment of which I most eagerly sought, and if my incantations were always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors. The natural phenomena that take place every day before our eyes did not escape my examinations. Distillation and the wonderful effects of steam processes of which my favorite authors were utterly ignorant, excited my astonishment, but my most utmost wonder was engaged by some experiments on an air pump which I saw employed by a gentleman whom we were in the habit of visiting. The ignorance of the early philosophers on these and several other points served to decrease their credit with me, but I could not entirely throw them aside, before some other system should occupy their place in my mind. When I was about fifteen years old, we had retired to our house near Belrive, when we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm. It advanced from behind the mountains of Jura, and the thunder burst at once with frightful loudness from various quarters of the heavens. I remained while the storm lasted, watching its progress with curiosity and delight. As I stood at the door, on a sudden I behold a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak which stood about twenty yards from our house, and so soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared, and nothing remained but a blasted stump. When we visited it the next morning, we found the tree shattered in a singular manner. It was not splintered by the shock, 
but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. The catastrophe of this tree excited my extreme astonishment, and I eagerly inquired of my father the nature and origin of thunder and lightning. He replied, electricity, describing at the same time the various effects of that power. He constructed a small electrical machine and exhibited a few experiments. He made also a kite with a wire and string, which drew down that fluid from the clouds. This last stroke completed the overthrow of Cornelius Agrippa, Albertus Magnus, and Paracelsus, who had long reigned the lords of my imagination. But by some fatality I did not feel inclined to commence the study of any modern system, and this disinclination was influenced by the following experience. My father expressed a wish that I should attend a course of lectures upon natural philosophy, to which I cheerfully consented. Some accident prevented my attending these lectures until the course was nearly finished. The lecture, being therefore one of the last, was entirely incomprehensible to me. The professor discoursed with the greatest fluency of potassium and boron, of sulfates and oxides, terms to which I could affix no idea, and I became disgusted with the science of natural philosophy, although I still read Pliny and Buffon with delight, authors in my estimation of nearly equal interest and utility. My occupations at this age were principally the mathematics, and most of the branches of study appertaining to that science. I was busily employed in learning languages. Latin was already familiar to me, and I began to read some of the easiest Greek authors without the help of a lexicon. I also perfectly understood English and German, this is the list of my accomplishments at the age of seventeen, and you may conceive that my hours were fully employed in acquiring and maintaining a knowledge of this various literature. Another task also devolved upon me when I became the instructor of my brothers. Ernest was six years younger than myself, and was my principal pupil. He had been affected with ill health from his infancy, through which Elizabeth and I had been his constant nurses. His disposition was gentle, but he was incapable of any severe application. William, the youngest of our family, was yet an infant, and the most beautiful little fellow in the world. His lively blue eyes, dimpled cheeks, and endearing manners inspired the tenderest affection. Such was our domestic circle, from which care and pain seemed forever banished. My father directed our studies, and my mother partook of our enjoyments. Neither of us possessed the slightest preeminence over the other. The voice of command was never heard amongst us, but mutual affection engaged us all to comply with and obey the slightest desire of each other. Thank you for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been a continued reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I will ask you to please forgive any times that I misspoke or mispronounced words in this very difficult chapter, I am reading this book along with you for the first time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to help me improve the quality of it. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on books you would like me to read next, you can find me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature. Welcome back 
to my Relaxing Literature podcast. Tonight, we're going to be continuing our reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. We're currently beginning letter three. To Mrs. Seville, England, July 7th. My dear sister, I write a few lines in haste to say that I am safe and well advanced on my voyage. This letter will reach England by a merchant man now on its homeward voyage from Archangel, more fortunate than I, who may not see my native land, perhaps for many years. I am, however, in good spirits. My men are bold and apparently firm of purpose, nor do the floating sheets of ice that continually pass us, indicating the dangers of the region towards which we are advancing, appear to dismay them. We have already reached a very high latitude, but it is the height of summer, and although not so warm as in England, as in England, the southern gales which blow us speedily toward those shores to which I so ardently desire to attain breathe a degree of renovating warmth which I had not expected. No incidents have hitherto befallen us that would make a figure in, in a letter. One or two stiff gales and the breaking of a mast are accidents which experienced navigators scarcely remember to record, and I shall be well content if nothing worse happened to us during our voyage. I do, my dear Margaret, be assured that for my own sake as well as yours, I will not rashly encounter danger. I will be cool, persevering, and prudent. Remember me to all my English friends. Most affectionately yours, R.W. Letter 4 To Mrs. Seville, England August 5th So strange an accident has happened to us that I cannot forbear recording it, although it is very probable that you will see me before these papers can come into your possession. Last Monday, July 31st, we were nearly surrounded by ice which closed in the ship on all sides, scarcely leaving her the sea-room in which she floated. Our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were encompassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hoping that some change would take place in the atmosphere and the weather. About two o'clock, the mist cleared away we beheld stretched out in every direction vast and irregular plains of ice, which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned, and my own mind began to grow watchful with anxious thoughts, when a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention, and diverted our solicitude from our own situation. We perceived a low carriage, fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs, pass on toward the north at the distance of half a mile, a being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature, sat on the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveller with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. This appearance excited our unqualified wonder. We were, as we believed, many hundred miles away from any land, but this apparition seemed to denote that it was not in reality so distant as we had supposed. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible to follow his track, 
which we had observed with the greatest attention. About two hours after this occurrence, we heard the ground sea, and before the night, the ice broke and freed our ship. However, lay to until the morning, fearing to encounter in the dark those large, loose masses which float after, which float about after breaking up of the ice. I profited of this time to rest for a few hours. In the morning, however, as soon as it was light, I went upon deck and found all the sailors busy in one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea. It was, in fact, a sledge like the one we had seen before, which drifted toward us in the night on a large fragment of ice. Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being with it, whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other travelers seemed to be, a savage inhabitant of some discovered land, but an European. When I appeared on deck, the master said, Here is our captain, and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea.' 